Hello, and welcome to Learn to Love, a show where we talk all about things you can do to build a better, stronger relationship. Our team is powered by passionate volunteers looking to bring forward the best of what they know to help you stay together. Love is hard, but it doesn't have to be. Our podcast, articles, and videos feature insights from the latest research on relationship psychology, intimacy, conflict resolution, parenting, and more. You don't need to go in blind and make the same mistakes as those around you. Check us out on our brand new website at learnlove.ca or listen on our podcast, the Learn to Love podcast. Thank you for joining us in our vision to create healthier relationships and stronger families. Hi guys, welcome back to the show. We are super excited to be welcoming you back uh, for a special episode. Today, we're going to be talking about something that is really important and really misunderstood by a lot of couples today. If you can relate to this topic, um, you know somebody maybe who you think is confused or this is something that you were confused about, we were confused about it too, let us know at contact at learnlove.ca. We'd love to hear from you about what you think of our episodes, our content, and if there's anything specific you want to see, we'd love to hear from you too. Also, we are going to be opening the show for interviews. If you have a really interesting story, something you want to share, something you think is in line with our message, a misconception about relationships, and you want to share your story, contact us at contact at learnlove.ca, and we are so excited to hear from you. Okay, so let's get right into the show. Today, we're going to talk about stages of a relationship. This is going to set us up for the next episode, which is going to be all about Gary Chapman's The Five love languages, a really, really fun and great book. And we're going to start this this episode on stages of a relationship with an analogy first introduced to me from Gary Chapman. And uh, we're going to expand on this analogy a little bit here. So when we think of a relationship, I want you to think about the relationship as a car. Okay, so the relationship is a car. The car has an engine, and the people in the car are like the couple. We're going to use a car for a number of analogies throughout the series, especially when it comes to conflict resolution. Um, We're very excited to record that. We're going to call it the consciousness car, which is a different analogy introduced by Mark Manson. Okay, but let's begin. So when Gary Chapman in The Five Love Languages talks about a car, he is saying that, well, what what does a car need to function? So it needs gas in the tank. It needs the right kind of gas. And when you fill it up, you need to have the right kind of nozzle to make sure that the gas is actually getting into the tank. Now, all our cars today have standard nozzles. You don't really have to think about it. When you go to the gas station, you know that that nozzle is most likely going to be the right one for your car. Um, But if you have like a special car, I mean, a rare car or something where before there was standardization, that was a little bit frustrating. But today we have that because of safety and convenience. Okay, so the car. When a couple is in a relationship, the car engine is on. Now, whenever you're in a relationship, 
the engine is running, okay? And when the engine is running, it's using fuel. And we're going to have to fill up that tank one day. Okay. So when the relationship first begins, I want you to imagine that this car is like brand new. Okay. Really shiny, really nice. It has a full tank of gas. And not only does it have a full tank of gas, it has nitrous, like those those blue tanks you see in the Fast and Furious movies that make this car go zero to a hundred like, like this. Okay, that's the start. The couple is flying. They are loving the start. They have so much energy. They feel like they would do anything for each other and that they found their soulmate. Okay. What happens? Some of us have experienced what we like to call uh, like a honeymoon stage of a relationship where things are really beautiful and then you have your first big fight with your partner and you start to realize, oh my God, if I was making them out to be this perfect angel, God, something like structure, maybe they were not everything that I thought of. So what is happening here? For the relationship to run, there has to be gas in the tank. Okay, now what happens to your car when it starts to run out of gas? You start to have problems. Okay, the car is going to stall. It's going to stop. The engine is going to make funny sounds. This is this is problematic territory. Now, the problem is that a lot of us don't actually know how to get the gas in the tank. So we notice that the car is running low on gas. And what do we do? So we, we, put, we, we think that we're putting gas in. We're working really hard to get the gas in the car. But it's the wrong kind of gas with the wrong nozzle. We need to make sure that we have the right kind of gas in the car. Okay, so what did we just describe here? The first stage of a relationship we're going to call romance, lust. Now, this is what you see a lot in Hollywood, in the movies, in the media. It's that feeling when you have really, really strong feelings and hormones for your partner, and you feel like you would do anything for them. It's this like big high that you get at the beginning of a relationship. Now, there's a number of theories as to why people get such a high. Uh, one of them is from anthropologists who think that relationship and bonding is really important for human survival. So if you meet somebody and you think that you can be compatible with them, that you can build a relationship together and be together, you have your brain rewarding you with hormones, saying, this is good, keep doing this, this is good for your life, this is good for the species. So that's a view. And we can expand on this further. It's not just for reproduction, but there's a lot of evolutionary anthropologists who are suggesting that humans lived in small communities for a very long period of history before they started to form larger civilizations, and they call these harems. Harems. It's like a few dozen people living together. So your survival back then was strongly, strongly related 
to your ability to be accepted by peers. So people who were excluded from groups, from these harems, often didn't make it just because the conditions were really hard to survive. So social acceptance is is maybe something that our brain rewards us because it was so important to have for survival before, and even still today we're seeing so important for survival today because people who live in stronger relationships, as John Gottman writes in his book, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, not only live four years longer on average than people who don't report being in happy, strong relationships, also their immune systems seem to be stronger. That's another interesting finding that they talk about in this book. We're going to talk a lot more about the effects of relationships in a separate episode and also on the effects of acceptance in childhood and how it is so important for lifelong health and success. And we're going to reference, when we talk about this, a really interesting study called the CDC Kaiser ACE study, which looked at adverse childhood experiences and how they affected individuals throughout their life. So what did we discuss so far? So at the beginning of a relationship, you have a really big rush of good feeling, which we're talking about on the show may be related to the necessity of having social acceptance, not just for the continuation of the species, but also for survival in previous time periods. And and we're seeing, again, still for survival today. So we're going to call this the first stage of a relationship, which is romance or lust, this really strong hormonal period. And it's super unfortunate that a lot of media and movies portrays this as being the whole part of a relationship. Like, in a lot of movies and and on TV, you see this, like, intense lust, desire when two people meet, and in a lot of songs where people are talking about this period, and they think that it's their whole relationship. Like, people, people watching media think that this stage is what is a relationship. But what we're going to suggest is that it's just stage one, and it typically lasts between three months and two years. It's so unfortunate that so many people have this stage start to pass and think that they're doing something wrong and then break up with their partners because they think that it's it's fizzling out It's and it's not supposed to be this way because of what they see on media, because there's so little portrayal of the next stages. So, okay. Stage one, last desire. We have a full tank of gas in this brand new car with the nitros, and this car is performing really well. Now, in stage two of the relationship, we're going to call this a bit of a struggle. Okay, we're going to call this stage struggle. Not that every couple goes through an intense struggle at this stage, but we think that there's a little bit of trouble when you first transition into this stage for many couples, which is a good struggle if you can find meaning and if you can learn from it. Okay, so what is the struggle? This is the part when your hormones are starting to fade and suddenly you need to find a way to get gas into the car to keep the car going. So you notice that the gas is starting to run low and you're trying to put more gas in, but initially it's kind of hard because 
you don't know what the right gas is. And if you don't have the right conversation with your partner, you it may be really, really hard to find out. A lot of couples go through quite a lot of trial and error at this stage when they start to discover themselves more and find out what they really want from each other, what they really expect from each other, and how to please their partner, how to give their partner what they want in a relationship after the initial lust and high phase where anything is beautiful and perfect starts to disappear. Okay. Now, what do you do in this stage? So this stage is like really, really important to discover who your partner really is, not just the the crazy feelings, but actually who they are. For example, like important conversations to have with your partner at this stage. What do you expect of me in the relationship? What does a great partner look like to you? What does the ideal boyfriend, girlfriend, significant other look like in, in your life? Another thing, what do you need from me? What are you scared of? What are you passionate about? What are things that I can do to help you, to help your make your passions easier to pursue, to help make your fears less significant or burdensome, or just to help you feel better? John Gottman and Sue Johnson recommend having these discussions in their books. John Gottman has a whole list of questions that you can talk with your partner about. He actually makes a whole list of games, like almost like a game, like a quiz game that you can play with your partner to get to know uh, the answers to these kinds of questions and the seven principles for making marriage work. And Sue Johnson in Hold Me Tight recommends specific exercises that couples do, such as writing down their needs of what they need from each other and their fears, what they fear the most, and communicate that with each other. So I hope that in this stage, if you feel yourself entering this stage of a relationship, or if if you are long past this stage, it's always helpful to have these kinds of discussions. It's really unfortunate, though, that a lot of people don't have these discussions, either because they don't know that they should be having them, or they experience a lot of shame. They have low self-esteem, or they're very insecure about their ability to be a good lover. They're not actually sure if they're a good lover, and they're scared that if they ask their partner on how good of a partner they are, that they may get an answer like, actually, you're not a good lover and it's going to destroy them. It's one thing if you believe you're not good, but if you keep it in your head. But if if you're not sure if you're good and then somebody else validates that you're not good, that can be really, really damaging to somebody's sense of self or, or self-esteem. Now, we're not saying that if your partner is is not the best at something that, that you shouldn't tell them. No, you, I, we, we think that you, you should have very high expectations for your relationship because that will encourage you both to work hard to make it strong and to make it beautiful. But there are ways that you can have these conversations in kind of lighter ways that are more relaxed and more productive. So the first major problem you might have 
if you are trying to have this conversation with your partner is they might get offended right off the bat if you bring this up. Maybe they come from a culture or a family where this kind of stuff was just never discussed and, and they're not used to it. Or maybe they come from a culture where they're not really used to expressing their feelings and it's going to be new to them to do it. Now that's okay. That, that's okay. You can work with them and take small steps to get better. Now, I want to bring up an idea from James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits. He says something really interesting. Now, this is a quiz. I want you to think what the answer is going to be before I say it. If you get 1% better at something every day, how much better are you at it by the end of the year? Think about it. Every day, we're getting 1% better. How much better are we going to be at the end of the year? Okay, five, four, three, two, one. Okay, if you guessed 3.65 times better, that's incorrect. If you guessed 18 times better, that's incorrect. If you guessed 100 times better, that's also incorrect. The answer is about 37 times better, 37,000% better by the end of the year because of compound interest, okay? The same thing that if you have long-term savings, which it's a great thing to do to become financially secure, but we're going to stay away from that because we're not a financial podcast. Um, You're going to get compound interest, which is going to make your principal double over a decade. The same thing is going to happen to your skills, So the idea here, guys, is we're not trying to go really fast and change our partner or anything. We're just trying to get 1% better at communicating our needs and expectations in the relationship. Because once we do that with our partner, it's going to help us feel much closer to each other and get to the next stage. Before we go right to the next stage, I want to give some more tips about having this conversation with your partner. So the first thing I think is so important is to use I instead of you when we bring up the discussion. So we're not going to say, hey, like, you know, you're so this, 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 so we need to have a discussion. No, no, no. We're going to say I. You can say something like, hi, like, er, hey, partner. Okay. I was listening to this podcast on building stronger relationships and I heard about this technique which is supposed to make us feel like way happier. Like we feel happy now. Imagine if we can get even happier. And then your partner says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you not satisfied with the relationship? And then you say, I'm, 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 satisfied. I'm happy. Don't worry. I'm here to stay. But I'm also really curious. And one of my curiosities is in relationships. It's like kind of like a hobby of mine. And I just think this is cool. So if you're into it, maybe we can give it a try. You know, so, so that is, it's not a, it's a soft startup. It's very hard for your partner to get offended at something like that. Okay. And then 
you can actually make a list. Kind of like, what what are your expectations of a great partner? What do you need from me? What are you scared of? Kind of thing. And make a list and just talk about it. We believe that you can only love somebody as much as you know them. So taking the time to get to know your partner is so beautiful. There's so much more things you can love about them once you get to know more about who they are. And also, the more you know them, the easier it will be to understand them in different instances. So let's say your partner does something and you're just really not sure why they did it in the moment, like they overreacted. By knowing them a little bit more, maybe knowing their fears, knowing where their fears are rooted, you can you can understand. Now, Sue Johnson and Hold Me Tight talks about soft spots, which are the things that get us from zero to 100 really fast. And for a lot of partners, it's very strange because you think about your partner the way you think about yourself. So you say like, oh, well, I wouldn't get so offended. You know, why are they getting so offended? But the important thing to think about is, well, maybe that's a soft spot. A soft spot is an insecurity usually rooted in childhood where it's not actually your what you're doing in the moment that's leading to this interaction, but it's actually something that they're very insecure about that's very problematic for them. And what you can do is you can just acknowledge that your partner is feeling overwhelmed if, if you trigger a soft spot. Remember we talked about rescue in the last episode. The first thing you can do is try help them calm down by holding them or assuring them everything's going to be okay, that you're there for them, that you're listening. And after you calm down, you can talk about, ask your partner, I'm curious to learn about what that was like for you. Can you share with me what it felt like? And you'd be amazed at what they can tell you. Another thing we noticed on the show is it's really interesting when you approach a partner from curiosity. I think people really like it when somebody is curious about them. So like when their partner is curious about them. So if, if you approach your partner with a genuine curiosity to learn about them in a respectful way, they might be like, wow, somebody, you know, he, they really love me. They really care about me if they want to know so much about me and if they want to understand me. Because that that's, that's so important that, you know, when we feel understood, it's like an amazing feeling. It's like, wow, they care to understand me. Now, another thing I want to bring up at this stage is a lot of partners might get triggered if you try to have this conversation together to understand each other more, to learn more about each other's fears and needs. Because they might think that you have to solve their problems. So like a lot of partners think that when one partner presents a problem to them, that it's the other partner's job to solve the problem. But And, and then the partner gets overwhelmed. They say something like, why are you bringing this up to me? I don't know what to do. I don't know how to solve this. Stop coming to me with your problems and loading your problems on me. And that is really hurtful because it's it's like I felt alone, like I was struggling with this problem. And now I told you, and now I feel even more alone and struggling. But what partners should remember is it's not actually your job most of the time to solve the problem for your partner in that moment. If your partner comes up to you and asks, and, and is sharing a problem that they have with you, 
they're most of the time seeking primarily to feel understood in that moment. So I want you to I want you to think, like remember this, put this in your head. If your partner is approaching you and explaining a problem to you, don't get triggered and think about what you need to do, how you're going to solve it. Don't think about that. Take a deep breath and just listen. And then when your partner is done, you can say something like, wow, that must be really hard. I can't imagine what that feels like. I want you to know that I'm here for you in this and I'm available and, you know, just you're you're not alone. That is so beautiful. And that's what your partner is looking for. They're not looking for you to solve their problem. They're just looking for you to understand them, to make them feel like they're not alone. Okay, so now let's summarize what we talked about so far. So stages of a relationship. We opened with the idea of a car, and you need to get gas in the car, okay, for it to run. At the beginning, it's really full, and then it starts wearing out. The first stage is this lust romance that we see in media, and then partners go through a little bit of a struggle to learn how to get that gas in the tank. Um, How do you know what kind of gas it is, what the nozzle is? You really, the idea is you want to make sure that that gas is going in the tank. So, so many partners, they're like, look, I'm pumping gas. And they're like, I put 100 liters in. But they're like, no, you didn't because it spilled all over the floor. And they get super frustrated. They're like, look, I'm pumping gas. And the other partner is trying to tell them, look, you're pumping gas, but it's the wrong gas. You're putting diesel into a petrol car or it's spilling all over the floor. And the other partner gets mad and says, well, I don't know what to do, you know? And then it's like, okay, okay, what do you do? Well, this is what you do. You talk. How many people have actually asked their partner before, what do you need from me? What does support look like? What doesn't work for you? Think about it. You're spending more time with your partner than maybe anyone else in your life. And you didn't even ask these these questions, which in a job are like some of the first questions that, that you get asked if you're working on a team at work. So many people at work get almost like performance evaluations in a sense where where they, you know, they they say, This is how you're doing, this is what you can do better, this is what we want from you, this is what we expect from you. People are kind of used to it in a work setting. I'm not saying that you should make your relationship like like work and rigid and this kind of stuff. I'm just saying that like companies who ask, who try to communicate clearly what their needs are for their employees and give their employees an opportunity to also communicate what they need to succeed in their roles, do do well. And and you know, you don't have to limit these tricks just to the business world. You can apply them to your own life too. Okay, so we just went through the first few stages. Now, what comes after this initial struggle? We're going to call it working. So working is that stage in your relationship when you figured out what your partner's needs are, what you know, you communicate what your needs are for your partner. And it's not selfish, guys, to communicate your needs. There's so many people who 
who just feel like it's not okay to ask for what they want. But that's not true. Your partner is your support. They they want to be there for you. It's a partner because it's like, you know, partner, partnership. It's like team. You guys are like a team. So it's okay to ask for what you need. Just do it respectfully. Use I. Don't assign blame. And just kind of try to describe it simply without without being harsh and from a place of love and respect. And if your partner gets triggered, understand that it may be hard for them. It may be nothing related to you, which is why they feel like that. Maybe they're just, it's a soft spot for them. That's okay. Work to calm the situation down. Okay. Then talk about it when things are calm. Also, it might be hard at the beginning. There might be a lot of tears involved. It might be the first time, guys, the first time that your partner ever felt truly understood in their life. It might be the first time that somebody asked them honestly and openly what they can do to support them. That is so beautiful. Okay, the next stage, working. So so you have this conversation. You start, you figured it out. Okay. And things are really good for some time because it's it's just, it's working out for you. It's like the, hi, honey. It's like, you know that your partner wants to be kissed when they come home from work. You know that your partner wants you to help them cook dinner sometimes or expects you to do more housework. And so you do it and things are really nice. Working, things are working. And then why... Is this the, okay, is this the last stage? I want you to think. Is this the last stage? No, there's one more stage after this. We're going to call it maintenance. Why do we say maintenance? Okay, you can figure out how to pump gas in your car, but it's going to need an oil change sometimes. You need to maintain it. Maintenance means understanding that your partner changes and you change, and your needs change, and your priorities change, sometimes that, you know, and and that's okay. This happens a lot with couples when they have their first child. So they get to working, and they're happy, you know, they're happily married, they're together, they have a lot of time together, like things are good, and then boom, first child happens. And then boom, relationship changes completely. No longer are they together anymore, but now there's an infant requiring a significant amount of time from the partners. And if one partner isn't so involved in the caring of this infant, it's going to be really hard for them. They're going to feel very lonely. They might feel very lonely apart from their, their, their partner because their partner is so occupied with, with caring for this new infant. It's a transition. And also, the, the partners may have a major identity change at the birth of the first infant. We're going to talk more about changes in parenting and parenting in general in later episodes. Um, But the takeaway here is just to understand that maintenance is so important. There are so many couples, so many couples that get mad at each other when they change. Can you believe it? A conversation like this. Honey, we used to do this. It was so much fun. You know, why don't you want to do it anymore? It's like, I don't like it anymore. And it's like, no, it's not okay that you don't like it. It's like, what? It's okay to change, you know? I mean, if, if your partner really likes something and you don't like it, 
you can accommodate them. I mean, maybe your partner really likes a certain TV genre and you and you don't. You know, you, you can watch it with them sometimes. It makes them feel special. But just understand that people change and that that's okay. You have to change. You have to be their support and you have to work to understand them still when they change. Now, some couples go back and forth stages too, and that's okay. You can be working and you can do a bit of maintenance and and things are good. And then you can go back to struggling sometimes and it's okay as long as you have the right conversations. Remember, seek first to understand, then to be understood. All right, guys, so thank you so much for joining us in this episode. I hope that you enjoyed it and learned something new and meaningful. In the next episode, we're going to dive right into Gary Chapman's The Five Love Languages. They're super fun. They're super cool. I hope that you can discover your love language in this in this next episode. A little sneak peek. The love languages are kind of like the type of gas that goes in the car. So the way that Gary Chapman describes it is that it's kind of like a language, right? So let's say that your partner is speaking to you really beautiful Italian, like saying, telling you the nicest things in Italian, but you don't speak Italian, you speak Spanish. It's like, okay, you're trying, but like, I don't get it. Like, I, I, you know, it's all working for me. We're going to learn about how to find our love languages, uh, how to apply them to our lives, and how in doing that to get to maintenance and to working in the most efficient way possible. I hope that you will have found these discussions helpful. And please remember when bringing them up with your partner that not being sure if somebody's lovable, not being sure if they're worthy of love is one of the biggest insecurities in relationships. Always remember that you have to come with a big a, a full heart of caring and communicating to help your partner feel like they are good enough. So many people don't feel good enough, especially when it comes to love. They think, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not handsome enough. I'm not attractive enough. I haven't done enough. I'm not worthy of love. It's such a big thing. Remember, you're approaching your partner and yourself saying, I am worthy of love and understanding and acceptance, and you are worthy of love and understanding and acceptance, and we're going to do this to help us get there better. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to hear more of this kind of stuff, check out other episodes in our podcast, and if you prefer written stuff, that is okay too. We have a blog for when you want to read. It's on learnlove.ca slash blog. If you have a compelling story that you want to share with us to be featured on this podcast, send us an email at contact at learnlove.ca and we're accepting volunteers. So if you want to be on the show, you can also reach out to us by email. If you want to write for us, we would love to see your submissions. We currently have some guest submissions in preparation. And we are slowly transitioning into video. So if you want to be a part of our YouTube channel, please contact us. And that's contact at learnlove.ca. You can find us at learnlove.ca. Our YouTube is Learn to Love, but it's still in development at this recording, so there isn't too much there now. And uh, we can't wait to see you in the next episode on Gary Chapman's Five Love Languages. Thank you for joining us on the show today.
Catch you in the next episode.